The question is, how do we create meaningful learning experiences that allow individuals to learn and grow, to acquire the, skill, the skills that they need for the career that they're, that they're going to um, enter now, but also leave the door open for continued learning, for advanced learning, and for additional degrees. Welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Dr. Melissa Morris Olson. Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading-edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious You is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chelep. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, Dr. Lenore Rodicio. Dr. Radicio is a nationally recognized leader in higher education, a native of Miami, Florida. Dr. Radicio currently serves as executive vice president and provost for Miami-Dade College, MDC. She joined MDC in the fall of 2002 as an adjunct instructor of chemistry at the Kendall and Inter-American campuses. Since that time, she's held a number of positions at the college, including associate professor, Chair of Natural and Social Sciences, Dean of Academic Affairs, Vice Provost for Student Achievement, and Provost of Academic and Student Affairs. I've been really looking forward to this conversation for many reasons, but most particularly is the fact that Dr. Rodicio is an expert in the work that is being done in higher education that is so very critical today with student access, success, and achievement the recruitment of underserved populations to the STEM fields, increased access to liberal education for all students, and continuous improvement of the teaching and learning process. She has led projects funded by the National Science Foundation and the Carnegie Foundation. She's also worked with key partners, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Achieving the Dream, Lumina and Kresge, to implement comprehensive solutions to improve completion rates, while upholding the highest standards of quality teaching and learning. Under her leadership, MDC has developed alternative pathways to college credentials, including non-credit crosswalks to credit programs, prior learning assessment, and competency-based education. 
Dr. Radicio's transformational work in student success and achievement has led to significant improvements in retention and graduation. Today, MDC's retention and graduation rates for all students, and in particular for minority students, exceed the national average. These improved outcomes have positioned MDC as first in the state and among the top four institutions nationally in increasing the economic mobility of its students. Additionally, her leadership in developmental education has resulted in one of the most successful mathematics redesign processes in the country. Dr. Rodicio holds a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from Barry University and a Doctor of Philosophy degree in chemistry from Louisiana State University. She serves as an advisor to and a member of the steering committee of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Post-Secondary Scaling Partners Group. She also serves as an advisor to the Lumina Quality Credentials Task Force and is a current member of the Executive Committee of the Board of Directors and Vice Chair for the Association of American Colleges and Universities, among other things. In recognition of her role and voice in higher education in Florida, she was recently selected as a 2019 Miami Herald influencer. She was named one of the South, one of South Florida's influential businesswomen by South Florida Business Journal in 2018. In 2017, she was also named the In the Company of Women Outstanding Women in Education honoree by the Miami-Dade Commission for Women of Miami-Dade Parks. Wow, Lenore, thank you so, so very much for being with me today. Thanks, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be joining you today. You have an inspiring career path, to say the least. I, I'm sure our listeners would like to know where your journey began and what drew you into higher education as a career path in the first place. I often get that question of how my career path started, and the simple answer is that it actually started by accident, this path in higher education. Um, so as you mentioned in my bio, I'm trained as a chemist and coming out of graduate school, when I came uh, back down here to Miami, my goal really was to develop a research career and eventually be a faculty, but really focused on the research aspect. And as I completed my postdoctoral research work here at the University of Miami, I was trying to decide what my next steps were gonna be. And I had submitted a grant application for a research project, but at the same time, my second child had just been born and I decided that I wanted to take a little time to spend more time with her at home than I had with her older brother when he had been born. And so I decided that what, one of the things that I would do is teach as an adjunct faculty member at Miami-Dade College. And so I had a friend who was a full-time faculty member here and he was the one who sort of recruited me over. And I spent a semester teaching as an adjunct at this institution. And I, I often tell folks that it only took about a week or two before I literally fell in love with the institution, with our students. It, it really is an institution where meaningful transformations happen in the lives of the community that we serve. And you could see that the students would come to class with just this willingness to learn. And as you saw them grow and evolve the course of a semester, there was nothing that I had ever done in a research laboratory that was as rewarding as that. 
And so when the opportunity came to apply for a full-time faculty position, I did that. And the rest, as they say, is history. And I've been at the institution ever since. So that that second child of mine that prompted me to take this temporary adjunct position just turned 18 on Saturday. And I've been with the institution uh, that long as well. Wow, what a, what a great trajectory. And I, I think particularly for the role that you're in now to have started and come up the ranks of the faculty uh, has no doubt given you a, a terrific perspective for the kind of issues that you are dealing with and, and leading, right? Absolutely. I think one of the things that I've been very fortunate in is the trajectory that my career has taken here at the college in the sense that I've in some way or another touched every aspect of the institution from my days as an adjunct faculty member and then a full-time faculty member. I was later a chairperson before I moved into a dean role. And then when we started working on our student achievement and success initiatives, in the role I had there, I was able to work with the student services side of the house in a more direct and intentional way than I had done in the past. And then of course now in my role as executive vice president, I, I get to do a lot of work on the operational side. And so having had that experience of working one-on-one -on -one with the students, and then as I've gone through my career path here, working with all different uh, employees, staff and faculty at the institution, it's really prepared me and given me this bird's eye view of the institution that's not easy to accomplish unless you've done all those jobs. Exactly. Yeah, no, and I, I have somewhat of a similar career trajectory, having held positions across many different functional areas. And I, I have said the exact same thing, that it does give you a, a viewpoint that allows you to bring all of these different perspectives to bear when you're dealing with an issue that is so very helpful to decision making. So um, now let, let me ask you about this spring, just like just about everybody else in higher ed, your institution had to pivot uh, quickly in response to the pandemic. What, what was this experience like on your campus and what, what has the impact been for your students? So one of the, one of the roles that I play as executive vice president and provost is to serve as the incident commander for the college. And so whenever we have any kind of emergency, we switch to a unified command response as many institutions do. And I have the privilege of leading that. And we've done this numerous times in the past. In Here in Miami, hurricanes are a common occurrence. And even when we don't have a direct hit, there is often times where we have to prepare for one in the eventuality of that. So when we look at our emergency management plan, that chapter on hurricanes is very well developed. It's very detailed and we know all the ins and outs. So when we were faced with this pandemic situation and having to respond to this new type of emergency, we opened up our emergency management plan and we turned to the chapter on pandemics. And so we did have a chapter on that, but as we were looking at it, me and our uh, director for emergency preparedness kind of scratched our heads and looked at it and said, huh, this is, this is gonna need a little work. 
Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we, we had a framework from which to work, but we also had communications with our county emergency operations center, certainly with the state and the Florida college system lent a lot of support. And we quickly began to develop decision trees and matrices for deciding how, if, and when to close a campus or the college as a whole. And we very quickly had to employ those plans. And so I think for us, the most critical factor was the communication piece uh, across campuses with thousands of faculty and employees, hundreds of thousands of students and maintaining that. And we took a very systematic approach, uh, didn't want to rush into anything. So before we swapped over to remote learning, we actually closed down all classes and student services for two weeks so that we could prepare for that transition so that we could get technology into the hands of our students. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is the demographic of the students here at Miami-Dade College. 67% of them are low income, 44% of them actually live below the poverty line. And so this transition for many of them was very impactful. And it wasn't simple just to say, well, they can just do the learning from home. We had to make sure that they had the proper technology, the internet access to do that. And so it became an all hands on deck effort to get them ready while at the same time providing the training and professional development that our faculty needed to do that transition. And so we did it piecemeal for the spring. It was a matter of how do we finish out the spring? How do we get those last four weeks of the term completed successfully so that students could complete their courses and in some cases their degrees? And then we shifted our academic calendar to give us an extra month before starting our summer session that just began on Monday, June 1st. And that month allowed us to do additional faculty training, allowed us to prepare our course shells on our learning management system so that we would be more equipped for the summer. And so now that summer is running, we're starting to look towards the fall and scenario planning there for a, a the potential of one of three scenarios, either complete remote learning, partial remote with partial face-to-face -face, or a return to a normal or new normal form of operation with social distancing guidelines. So now that we've got summer rolling, now we're, our, our sites turn to the fall to begin planning for that. And do you have a, do you have a deadline? Have you set a deadline by when you want to uh, make a decision about which scenario? you're going to pursue? Mm -hmm. So our absolute last go, no-go date is gonna be during the second week of July, probably around July 15th. If not before then, uh, we need to provide information to the Florida College System and the State Board of Education as they finalize their plans as well, what's going on with the rest of the state. So that's, that's sort of our, our last date to make a decision. We also shifted the start of our fall semester to September 1st. So that would also give us a month and a half to get things ready and set for whichever one of those three scenarios plays out at that point. Sure, yeah. No, and you you are right where so many institutions are across the country in terms of trying to weigh alternatives and uh, in the midst of great uncertainty, um, make a decision that will hopefully be in the best interest of your students and your and your campus. 
Now, you have mentioned how large Miami-Dade is. I believe the latest figure I saw is 120,000 students across eight campuses. Is that That's right? correct. Okay. And you have mentioned you enroll uh, a very high percentage of, of minority students, um, ma the majority of, of whom are underprepared. I, I can't, I'm listening to what you've just described in terms of the, the process you have led. The role that you have had uh, as executive VP with the, with the crisis is, again, can you tell me again what that was The called? incident commander. Incident commander. I love that title. <laughs> My <laughs> because it, conjure, it conjures up this really complex kind of um, role. Uh, in addition to everything else that you do as executive VP and provost. So I cannot begin to imagine the complexity that you must be dealing with on a daily basis. So what's a, what's a typical day or week like for you? And, you know, I, I'm sure right now it's a little different, but, you know, on a daily, daily basis, you know, what, what is your, what does your life look like at work? Um <laughs> If there is a if there is a typical day, maybe there is. <laughs> that was going to be my response. A typical to say that there's a typical day, um, it, it's hard to to sort of put what my day looks like into into the sort of this broad bucket. Um, I usually have a very set calendar and list of things that I plan to do in a day, and by the end of the day, I look back and I ended up doing something completely different. And so, you know, the day has uh, a number of. Uh, of different aspects to it. And I guess it's it's easier to look at it from the perspective of a week. Um, in my role as EVP and provost, I do have sort of this, this two-sided, uh, multifaceted uh, uh, viewpoint where I work as provost with academic and student affairs, and then on the EVP side with our operations and finance. And so depending on what point in the term we are in um, and what we're preparing for, the typical day and week looks a little bit different. So as an example, this week, we're at the start of our summer session. And so we've been doing a lot of monitoring of enrollment, making sure that the students have all of the information they need to remain enrolled, to make the uh, tuition deadlines. We've been working very hard on creating an enhanced scholarship and financial aid packages for our students during this pandemic. Uh, have been working with the academic side of the house in terms of looking at the new programs that we want to bring online, both now during the summer, but in the fall, to make sure we have the appropriate opportunities for the students especially looking at what are going to be those important jobs that will be available post-pandemic. At the same time, I've been also working very closely with my chief financial officer as we prepare for presentations to our board of trustees in the next couple of weeks on budget planning for the next fiscal year, which begins on July 1st. And that has been a very difficult process this year for two reasons. One, we don't know what the impact is going to be of the pandemic on enrollment. And secondly, because of the, the timing and when the pandemic and its impacts first hit, there hasn't been a final approved budget from our state legislature just yet. And so we're expecting that there'll be some modifications to that. And so right now we're, we're planning for 
continuation of our current budget to support us as we go into the new fiscal year, but knowing that soon after we'll probably have to make some modifications depending on how all of these different scenarios that are still a little bit up in the air play out. Um, and then uh, also working with my facility staff on facilities considerations, both related to the pandemic in terms of uh, how do we ensure social distancing and the safety and security of individuals, but also looking at all of our deferred maintenance needs and using these times where we have less students and staff on campus to really um, make sure that we button up some of those projects that we had been waiting for an opportunity like this to finalize. Lenore, what you've just described is a wonderful example of what's called adaptive leadership. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that approach to leadership, but I'm, I'm struck by uh, a, a role that, that you're describing as, as literally needing to adapt as you go, sometimes on a daily basis to the challenges and whatever might come your way. Um, so I, I'm imagining that must be something that you really enjoy. I do. Um, and I, I think, you know, sometimes people ask me, wow, you were trained as a chemist. How does that help you um, in, your, in your current role as EVP and provost? And I think um, the systematic approach to science and you know, when you're doing experiments, the unexpected tends to happen and you have to kind of go back and rethink and retrace your steps um, and come up with a different solution. Yeah. Those are skills that I fall back on on a daily basis. And so it requires a very calm uh, demeanor and mind and also the ability to pivot. And whenever setbacks occur, or sudden changes um, or incidents occur to be able to quickly uh, think about potential solutions and how we approach it. And so that, the, that is something that on a daily basis, um, I know I have to deal with. And one of, my, one of my ground rules for what I operate, that I operate on is to not stress about the things I cannot control. Mm -hmm. And to just focus on those elements that are within my control and how can I utilize those to mitigate whatever situations come up and focus on the day to day. Um, there's planning that can be done, but I know that any plan I create is not meant to be a monument that's set in stone, but really a vehicle for decision making that's going to have to be tuned up and adjusted as I progress through any situation at the institution. Mm, and what a, what a skill that is in great uh, demand right now, given all of the disruption <laughs> that's happening in higher ed. But I'm, I, I can uh, only imagine how that serves you well in your role. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the current pandemic, higher education was in a distressed state. Colleges and universities are closing their doors or merging at an ever-increasing rate, and leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder that many experts have called for a new kind of leadership. 
The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input, and then we designed the program with their input in mind. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education, the HELOS program may be the program for you. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu slash academics slash graduate programs. ask you about the work that you've done with student access, success, and achievement. It's really quite quite inspiring. And you've led several initiatives, as I said at the outset, which have been described as transformational. Is there one uh, project or one effort that you've led that you are particularly proud of or that you believe has been especially impactful? And if, and if so, what, what is it and why? I think the work that we did around math redesign was one of the most impactful pieces. It's kind of hard to pick one. It's kind of like, you know, pick your favorite child. Um, <laughs> yeah. But under this umbrella of student achievement initiatives, I think the work that we did around math probably had um, the, the biggest uh, range of impact when we look across our students. We took a multifaceted approach to that. We did a lot of work in redesigning our traditional college preparatory mathematics courses or you know, remedial developmental education courses, whatever terminology folks are familiar with. So we did a lot of work in redesigning those traditional formats of developmental education. But we also did a lot of work in rethinking mathematics at the college level, particularly in the introductory gateway courses. And we also looked at ways to create just-in-time developmental education in mathematics, worked on faculty training to really shift the way that faculty teach in the classroom, focus more on helping students with the gaps in their skills, as opposed to trying to cover everything under the sun. Um, and then I also looked at the type of mathematics that students needed to be successful in the specific program paths that they, that they had chosen. And the results that we've had have been extremely impressive. We, we have less students now taking developmental education mathematics than ever. Um, we also uh, have seen just large increases in the success of students in those gateway math courses. And there isn't a silver bullet that I can point to in that. I think it really was 
an array of different types of solutions that we put into place across all of the different offerings that we had in mathematics to help our students be successful. And I think that's key, especially when we're talking about equity and how to ensure that all students have the tools they need to be individually successful. A lot of times we're looking for a one size fits all approach and that just doesn't exist. And so the key is to make sure that you have a variety of ways to provide the help that students need in these key gateway courses in ways that best fit them. Mm. Well, and this is the, the, what you've just shared is a great example uh, and an illustration for why so many uh, higher ed pundits have uh, increasingly said that if we're going to move the dime anywhere, it's going to happen at the community college level, because the work that you all are doing um, is is so impactful and uh, it and truly, and I don't I, I don't want to overuse the word transformational, but but it is it is transformational. There, there have also been a number of ideas, as you know, suggested to improve community college outcomes even further. For example, you're probably familiar with the piece uh, written by Terry O'Banion mm -hmm. with 13 ideas that are transforming the community college world. And some of his suggested innovations included things like co-enrollment in a four-year institution, meta-majors, structured or guided pathways, stackable credentials, reimagining remediation, something you, you just have talked about, and so on. Uh, of all of those, are there any that you think are particularly promising, or are there other things that you would add to his list in terms of um, important innovations for the future? And similar to the, you know, to the response I just gave you around developmental education and our work there, it's, it's not any one of these things, but it's all of these things and how they play together to create successful experiences for students at community colleges. But one of the innovations and transformations that have occurred over the last few years that to me is significantly important, and you referred to it as stackable credentials, which is I think the, the language that Terry uses in his book. Um, and those to me are critically important, but I prefer the, the terminology that's used by the Lumina Foundation and is part of the work that I collaborated on uh, with the Lumina Foundation around quality credentials and creating quality credential pathways for students. I think everyone at this point has realized that the job that you have right out of college is not the same job you're gonna have 10 years later. And I think most of us can point to that. I mean, I trained as a chemist and I do absolutely nothing related to chemistry today. And so the question is, how do we create meaningful learning experiences that allow individuals to learn and grow, to acquire the, skill, the skills that they need for the career that they're, that they're going to um, enter now, but also leave the door open for continued learning, for advanced learning, and for additional degrees. And this ensures that we create equitable pathways because we're not saying that there are less important degrees than others and that certain individuals should obtain certain degrees. But when we create these stackable pathways, it creates these 
touch points and endpoints for students that allows them to take that next leap in their career, but still keeps them on this pathway for continued and advanced learning. And a lot of times we think of these stackable credentials and these credential pathways as being focused only on the college credit side and your traditional associate's degrees and baccalaureate degrees. But there's a whole wealth of additional credentials out there now that if higher ed is going to really take the next leap into the future, we need to start looking at how micro-credentials and badges and industry certifications play into the conversation around your traditional college credit credentials and how they provide additional learning for students. And I'll give you a great example that we're employing right now here as a result of the pandemic. So knowing that a number of individuals were gonna be unemployed and that now would be an opportunity for them to upskill, we created a program called Upskill that provided free non-credit training to individuals in our community in things like digital media and marketing, a substitute teacher training, um, a number of different credentials in the IT area, cybersecurity and cloud computing that were non-credit, but lead to later on potentially industry certifications. And in all cases, we can crosswalk those into college credit programs. So now fast forwarding to the summer term and into the fall, we're now launching a Kickstart program, which are college credit certificates that can be completed in two semesters, will allow students to have a credential, but there is not a single college credit certificate here at Miami-Dade College that is standalone. They are all part of an associate degree so that students know that they have the security of having that credential and the value it brings to the job they want today, but it is part of a broader pathway that allows them continued growth in their chosen career. And how do you choose which areas to focus on for these, for these credentials? I'm assuming you must do a lot of good research in terms of the, the local industry and uh, job training industry needs. Absolutely, and we have two major sources of information that we utilize in terms of how, how we go about deciding what are the certificate programs and other workforce programs we want to put into place. So one source of information is simply just the numbers. What are the employment opportunities out there? What are the jobs that are targeted for growth in our community? and looking at different economic models. So that's one. But the other is that we've created a very systematic approach to engage with industry. And every single one of our schools has an advisory committee of industry leaders that help to provide us with input on the skills that they need in their employees, the skills that they see are currently gaps uh, when they look at recent college graduates so that we can continually improve our curriculum and develop those new programs that are gonna help meet their needs and ensure that our students have an employment pathway upon graduation. Mm, boy, that is so very smart and something that all of higher ed needs to be doing, doing a lot more of. Uh, let, let me ask you to draw the circle a little bit wider here because I'm, I'm 
you know, in many ways, you're talking about your own vision for what higher education should look like. And I'm, I'm curious as you, if you were to reimagine the higher education system in the United States, so thinking beyond your campus and even your state, but looking across the country, uh, what, what would your vision look like? Oh, <laughs> so if I could wave a magic wand, um, I, I think if we're really gonna be transformative, we really have to start pushing the envelope on the traditional degrees um, and the way that we measure student success. So right now, student success is very tied to the completion of these traditional degrees and not so much to the value that learning and the acquisition of certain competencies uh, brings to individuals out in the workforce. And especially for the non-traditional students, the ones who do not have that direct pathway straight out of high school and into college. And so one of the things that I hope will emerge post pandemic, uh, but just in general for higher education in the future is that we do become more dynamic and fluid. And while we still have these traditional models that we become more receptive to what industry is telling us is needed. And this is especially important for community colleges because we are here to help serve a very large population of students that are not traditional in terms of the, the inputs that we have, but in terms of the output, we're also here to serve our local community and the different companies, corporations, and industries that are here by supplying a talented workforce and ensuring that that pipeline is solid. And so we need to hear from them what it is that they need. What do they need us to develop in our programs that responds to those needs? And what do the students need in terms of flexible options for learning? How do they bring in their prior learning experience and competencies that they already have under their belts into these learning models. And we have pockets of this across the nation at different institutions. But I think if we're really gonna take a leap forward, we need to be a little bit more systematic about this. And it's difficult because the, the metrics that are used, the way that institutions are funded is so tied to the traditional models that it makes it difficult to really do those innovations at a large scale. And so what, what's it gonna take? to break through that, do you think? I think a lot of it is advocacy um, and working with local, state, and national leaders on those conversations, determining what it is that we want as a nation for our higher education system to accomplish and to help put those things into place. Uh, how, do we, how do we lift up the value of uh, the, the general education courses that we have at our institution and the importance of those in creating well-rounded individuals with the importance of the workforce programs and the work that those programs serve in creating this uh, very skilled pipeline of individuals, particularly in the technology fields. And so if we can begin to think about what it is that we want the education system to provide at the end of the day, then we can work it backwards to figure out, okay, how do we get from point A to point B? And knowing that it's not an overnight transformation, but one that I think is gonna occur slowly, I think we can start to get there and create some more systematic change.
Mm, I think we need to appoint you on a national level <laughs> to, to some educational guru post because I'm, I'm listening to you and I agree with so much of what you're saying in terms of what is what is needed for the future. So let me turn the conversation to a more personal place, if you don't mind. I, I know people who know you who describe you as a very positive, as an inspiring leader. And so you obviously have been influenced in your development as a leader. You've talked a little bit about uh, your uh, coming into the academy first as a faculty member and how that has influenced you. I'm, I'm curious what other influences you've looked to as you think about who and where you are today in your life as a leader and what, what influences have been most significant uh, and, and when things do get tough, which they do for all of us, how, how do you find the courage or where do you find the courage to stay, to stay positive? That's a great question. Um, and I, I think one of the things that um, I think has just been a, an inherent part of my personality, even from being a, a young child, um, is learning from everybody I come into contact with whether good or bad and, and quickly sifting out, you know, the, the role models that I want to follow and the ones that I don't. Um, and, you know, going, going through um, my career, just learning from everyone um, that I come into contact with. I've learned a great deal from our students. Um, and I think I draw most of my inspiration from them. And as I make decisions on a daily basis, I always ask, how is this gonna impact the students? That's always the first question that I ask. And if it's gonna be a negative impact, then that's a less valuable solution than one that is going to have a positive impact uh, for our students. Um, they, they have such transformational stories um, and they're the reason that we're here. And so I draw a lot of inspiration from them. But I've also had the opportunity to work with a number of higher education leaders, both here at my institution and nationally as well on the different boards that I serve in. And the, the leaders that I'm most drawn to are those that are, are looking not, not to build a career or a name for themselves, but for the people that they serve, whether it's the students, their faculty, their staff, and their institution. Um, and I think, you know, those those change makers to me are, are some of the most critically important ones. Um, and then, you know, I, I live by a very stringent moral code that lies just make things complicated. And the truth is, mm -hmm. is the most critical component. And so being above board and transparent with every decision that I make and being able to explain it and always going back to this is what's best for the students, this is what's right, this is what um, is in line with the mission and vision of the institution. Those are all the guiding principles that help me make decisions on a daily basis. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. You, you mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, that you are a mother. And so I, I know that you are a wife, a mother, and a very, very busy professional. So I'm sure that for many of our listeners, they're going to want to know how in the world do you balance it all? 
So do you have any guidance, particularly for women who are uh, wanting to pursue significant leadership roles in higher education and maybe wondering how in the world are they going to do it? How do they how do they pull it all together and stay sane in the process? <laughs> so, so one of the data points that I'm not I don't know if you're aware of, but I'm not only a mother, I'm a mother of five and my my children. <laughs> Well, I, I did know that. I wasn't going to mention it. So my it my children range in age from 20, uh, who's the oldest, to six years old. So uh, this year, this year I have a student in college. I have a high school senior, a student graduating from middle school, and a kindergartner graduating from kindergarten. Uh, so it, it, it's been an interesting um, uh home remote learning situation with all these various scenarios going on right now. Um, but I, I think for, for me, the way that I've been able to balance it is by having a network of support. And I think that that's critically important for women especially, but I think for anyone who wants to have a healthy balance between life and work, you have to have that support network. So obviously my husband, is a huge support. Um, my mother-in-law, who lives across the street from us, um, has been a huge factor in, in helping with the kids and supporting them. And my parents also live uh, near here and, and help uh, with the kids as needed. But the other um, aspect of it is that, you know, I involve the children and my husband in, in a lot of the work that I do, events that we have on campus so that they see the importance of the work that I do and why I do it. It's also easier to have that conversation and that balance and for them to be understanding when they see that it's it's not really just a job, it really is a vocation and a calling. Um, and so they're so involved in it that it's almost like they, they haven't known me as anything but uh, you know a, an integral part of this institution, um, and I've got my the, the senior who's just graduating, she's gonna be a student here next year, and, and she's excited about it because you know she, she's the reason that I started my path here as an adjunct faculty member to spend more time with her. Um, so seeing her coming here kind of brings everything full circle. And so they, they understand the importance of the work that I do. And you know it, it's funny because when, when I first got a smartphone, uh, you know, several years ago as an administrator and they would see the little blue light flashing that there was a message. They were like, oh, mom, you, you've got a message from work. You've got to look at that. Um, they become very, very involved <laughs> in it. But but really, the, the secret to it is really having that support network, whether it's family, friends, um, to, to help you um, balance that and be there for them when you can't be there. Um, that I think is is the most important piece and then integrating them in any way that you can into the work that you do. Mm, boy, and your your child is very brave to come as a student on the campus <laughs> where you were. Yeah, you my, are my, husband, my husband was joking that, uh, that the rest of the campus is probably wondering why she couldn't have chosen a different institute. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, I somehow I have the feeling it's going to all work out just fine. So um, let me end, Lenore, with a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on the podcast. And you've you've really sort of answered it, but I'm going to give you a chance to kind of pull it all together here at the end. And the question is this. What do you see ahead for higher education that we all need to be paying more attention to? 
or said another way, what what needs to be on our radar and why? I think what has been brought into sharp focus, particularly because of the pandemic, but we were seeing the signs of this before, higher education has suffered a big hit in public opinion. Um, and over the years, we've seen a steady increase in the negative opinion of the public of higher education, its value and what it provides to the students. And I think now with this pandemic and this switch to remote learning, a lot of individuals, parents and students are thinking about what do I really value and what am I looking for in higher education as they make their decisions, especially new students going into the fall. So looking forward to higher, forward in higher education, we need to have our eye on what value do we bring to the students and how do we offer that to them in a way that allows them to complete their educations, to obtain the careers that they're looking for. And most importantly, how do we become, how do we become more dynamic and responsive to the needs of our respective communities. That I think is the most important consideration that we all have to uh, keep in mind as we move forward over the next few months and years. Mm, boy, and that is a great, great note to end on. So again, I wanna thank you for your time and for this conversation. It has been very uh, informative and inspiring. And so I wish you all the best as you're making these important decisions in the months ahead. Thank you so much, Melissa. It was a great conversation. I'm Melissa Morris Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with Brandon Bastide. As president of Kaplan University Partners, Brandon has his finger on the pulse of what's happening with higher education right now. He is an internationally known speaker and author on educational policy who consults frequently with leaders around the globe. Join us for this conversation to hear Brandon's take on higher ed's biggest issues and challenges, along with his advice for how to prepare your institution for a post-pandemic future. For now, thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.